This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. Welcome to AM. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. Refugees say they're relieved the federal government's decided to end the use of temporary protection visas and allow thousands of people who arrived here by boat to stay permanently in Australia. At the last election, Labor promised to scrap these visas and another class known as the Safe Haven Enterprise Visa. This decision affects about 19,000 people already here. All of them arrived in Australia before the introduction of Operation Sovereign Borders in 2013. But the government warns it's not a green light to people smugglers, saying anyone who tries to come to Australia over the oceans won't be allowed in. Rachel Hayter reports. It's news Hazara man Zaki Haidari has been waiting for since he fled the Taliban in Afghanistan in 2012. Today, after more than a decade of uncertainty, he can finally call Australia home. I'm in disbelief that this announcement came through and I can call Australia permanent home. Yeah, I'm, I'm very emotional and I haven't really had really good time to sort of process the news. Um, yeah, it's, it's unreal. Zaki is one of about 19,000 people who the federal government will allow to stay permanently in Australia. The Labor election promise includes people who hold temporary protection visas and safe haven enterprise visas. This change is truly monumental in the lives of people who are on temporary protection and share visas as they can now get on with and rebuild their lives see their family and have the permanency and safety that they deserve. Jana Favero is Director of Advocacy and Campaigns at the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. People granted the new resolution of status visa will have the same rights and benefits as all other permanent residents. They'll be immediately eligible for social security payments, access to the NDIS and higher education assistance. We are really happy with all of the conditions once someone does that, get that permanency because it's the permanency that is the thing that will give safety and enable people to be able to rebuild their lives. When former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd tinkered with the immigration policy, thousands of asylum seekers jumped into boats seeking to get to Australia. Then opposition leader Tony Abbott politically weaponised this. It's something the Albanese government is eager to avoid. Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill reiterated the federal government's commitment to Operation Sovereign Borders and warned people against attempting to come to Australia by boat, emphatically stating they won't be allowed in. For now, Zaki is eager to get on with his life. Rachel Hayter reporting there. Fifteen years ago, Kevin Rudd delivered the historic apology to the stolen generations and today the federal government's preparing another step towards reconciliation. It's presenting a fresh set of plans, including hundreds of millions of dollars to tackle Indigenous disadvantage as part of its Closing the Gap policy, aimed at closing the gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians on issues like life expectancy, education and health. The government admits so far there's been an enormous failure in trying to achieve that and says this latest plan will bring real change. Political reporter Stephanie Dalzell has more. A watershed moment for reconciliation in Australia. We apologise, especially for the removal of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children from their families, their communities and their country. 
Then Prime Minister Kevin Rudd's national apology in 2008 was an acknowledgement of how successive governments had failed Indigenous Australians and a commitment to do better. But by Indigenous Australians Minister Linda Burney's own admission, they haven't honoured that promise. I think governments have tried to, but there is enormous failure uh, in meeting all of the closing the gap targets. The 2022 Closing the Gap report showed limited progress, with some measures like incarceration, suicide and child removal rates even going backwards. With an agreement from all Australian governments to meet a range of targets to tackle Indigenous disadvantage by 2031, the lead convener of the Coalition of Peaks, Pat Turner, told an event in Canberra last night much more needs to be done. You do the sums. Not long left, okay? Not long left to close the gap but we have to continue to plug away. The government will today unveil a national implementation plan with an additional $424 million in funding aimed at closing the gap. The money will go towards making essential food more affordable in remote areas, supporting families impacted by violence and creating water infrastructure for communities that don't have access to clean drinking water. There are many communities, remote Aboriginal communities, in Australia that do not have clean drinking water cannot have dialysis because the water is not clean enough for the dialysis machines, despite the fact that uh, renal failure is such an issue in our communities. For Linda Burney, enshrining a voice to Parliament in the Constitution will also help. She's warning those who boycotted the apology to the stolen generations not to repeat the mistakes of the past and back the voice. Opposition leader Peter Dutton was among some coalition MPs who refused to support the national apology, something he's since said he regrets. Don't make the same mistake twice. Uh, this issue of the voice is not about politicians. It's not about political games. The Liberal Party is yet to decide whether it will throw its support behind the voice in a referendum, arguing the federal government hasn't released enough detail. Last week, the government was forced to bow to opposition pressure for pamphlets making cases both for and against the voice to parliament, but it's still holding firm on another coalition request to fund official yes and no campaigns for the voice equally. Legislation aimed at updating the legal framework of referendums will be introduced to Parliament this week. Opposition frontbencher Jane Hume says unless the government meets its demands on the referendum, the coalition won't support the bill. The government keeps saying that this is the people's referendum and that's fine, but an official campaign for yes and no doesn't necessarily turn it into a politician's referendum. It simply puts integrity measures around the system so that we can trust in the outcome. Opposition frontbencher Jane Hume ending that report by Stephanie Dalzell. Australians already struggling with disability are also dealing with carers leaving their jobs at the highest attrition rates of any sector. But a new report commissioned by the Australian Services Union has found extending leave entitlements to all national disability insurance scheme workers would help stem the exodus. Annie Guest reports. Claire Urban is a support worker in southern Sydney. For many of her clients, she is their only or main carer. I do really enjoy it. I've met a lot of amazing people. It has allowed me to see that people with disabilities 
have still have abilities. They're not less than everyone else. And I've just met some, I've had some very, very amazing clients that I've been very close to. But the 54-year-old says caring work can be hard. It can be a very stressful job. You know, a lot of clients are going through very difficult times. Often I'm there to to try to find ways of of solving people's problems and that's not always easy because some problems aren't solvable. So to to be there for people when they're going through really difficult times can can is sometimes very hard. Claire Urban says it's made harder because she doesn't have sick leave or annual leave. Every year, she says, she only takes a few days off. Depending on how much you're paid per hour, um, you will simply not be able to put aside that money. A report by the progressive think tank the McKell Institute has found one quarter of NDIS workers leave their jobs every year and one half plan to leave the sector within five years. The report's author is Edward Kavanagh. Well, the NDIS sector actually has the highest turnover rate out of any industry in the Australian economy, which is a pretty extraordinary stat. The big problem with such high turnover of NDIS workers is not only that we're losing workers from the system, but we're actually undermining the quality of care and the consistency of care for NDIS participants. The $35 billion a year NDIS has about 287,000 workers, but it's forecast to need another 83,000 workers by the end of next year. To get them and keep them, Edward Kavanagh says a portable entitlement scheme is needed so they keep their leave from employer to employer. We believe that you know NDIS um, workers, no matter whether they're a contract worker or a casual worker, they should be able to accrue uh, basic leave entitlements like sick leave and annual leave. Angus McFarland from the Australian Services Union is calling on the federal government to fund such a scheme. So the Australian um, Labor Party took to the last federal election and a commitment to consult with states, territories, uh, unions and employers about establishing portable leave schemes like this in industries that need them. Well, we say the evidence is clear. The NDIS needs these kinds of initiatives. A spokeswoman for the NDIS minister, Bill Shorten, has welcomed the McKell Institute's report and says workforce issues are being examined in the current NDIS review. Annie Guest reporting. Both the United States and Canada are trying to find and retrieve the debris of two unidentified flying objects that were shot down during the past few days. At this stage, neither object has been linked to any foreign government, but it's raising questions about why there's a sudden increase in these UFOs or whether it's a case of they're being noticed now. Here's North America correspondent Carrington Clark. Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says he gave the order for another unidentified flying object this time hovering over the Yukon, to be shot down. Yesterday, NORAD confirmed um, that an unidentified object uh, entered unlawfully Canadian airspace. Uh, It represented a reasonable threat to civilian aircraft, uh, so I gave the order to take it down. The North American Aerospace Defence Command, or NORAD, was set up by the United States and Canada in the 1950s. Its primary aim at that point was to deal with the threat of the Soviet Union. This was the first time in the history of NORAD that jet fighters had shot down an object. 
but it was the third time in a week that a United States jet had shot down an object over North America after the Chinese balloon last week and a different object over Alaska a couple of days ago. White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre told MSNBC the administration would act to protect America. Promises we're always going to track, uh, we're always going to detect, and we're always going to defend our airspace, and that's what the, the American people mm -hmm. uh, should expect. The White House was criticised by some for not taking earlier action against the suspected Chinese surveillance balloon which flew over the United States last week. It wasn't shot down until it reached the Atlantic coast. The rationale given for shooting these two more recent objects down so quickly is that they were flying at a lower height, around 12,000 metres, and therefore posed risk to civilian traffic. Democratic Congressman Jim Hines says he hopes the administration hasn't become too trigger-happy. Well, I certainly hope not. I mean, if that's where we're going to go, uh, there will be an accident. You know, at some point we're going to shoot down something we don't want to shoot down, whether it's civil aviation or what have you. There's no evidence yet the two more recent objects were from China. They look different and appear to be much smaller. However, China remains firmly in the sights of some members of Congress. Republican Representative Michael McCall told CBS he wants stricter controls on exports of technology into China. Uh, I think shockingly, when the balloon was recovered, it had American-made component parts in there with English on that. It was made, you know, parts made in America that were put on a, a spy balloon from China. I don't think the American people accept that. The mystery of these latest objects probably won't be solved until their debris is recovered. It's a difficult task given the remoteness of the environment where they were downed and harsh weather conditions. In the meantime, speculation runs rampant about why these objects seem to be appearing over North America. This is Carrington Clark in Washington reporting for AM. A rainforest protection project Australian companies are using to offset their greenhouse gas emissions is under attack from logging. Australian law firms and super funds, the environment group Planet Arc, the Sydney Opera House and Nespresso have all bought carbon credits from the venture drawn by claims that it would stop deforestation and transform the lives of people in poverty. But an investigation by ABC's Four Corners program found a very different story on the ground. Stephen Long reports. In a rainforest that's supposed to be saved from logging, this is not what you'd expect to find. We asked our driver to take us up and show us the pristine rainforest. Now, there is rainforest here, but there's also utter devastation from logging. An American company called Night Inc. runs the project we're investigating in the Papua New Guinean province of New Ireland. It's a project that's supposed to prevent deforestation, something that we thought would be unquestionably good. That's Mark Worthington from Australian Mutual Bank, one of many Australian businesses, including the Sydney Opera House, that bought carbon credits from the venture to offset their greenhouse gas emissions. The benefits for Indigenous people in PNG were part of the attraction, but no one we met was satisfied. The people here, they, they are not very happy. They are not happy about the nights. Dorman Gibson is a local teacher. We want a company which will come in to help us to develop our land fairly. Nasson Audi is a community leader. He told us why some local landowners called in the loggers. Carbon trading uh, nights, uh, they promised us that uh, benefits like uh, schools, church, roads, health centres, 
They did not fulfill some uh, promises. That's why the people called for logging. So now both of them are operating in our area. Knight concedes there's been logging happening since June 2020. Mark Worthington says businesses like his should have been told. If we have a project which is designed to prevent deforestation and there is controversy surrounding deforestation, then clearly we wouldn't want to be associated with it. Knight says some of the logging has now ended. It denies it has any impact on the integrity of the carbon credits it's already issued. Stephen Long reporting, and you can see the full investigation on ABC TV tonight, 8.30. Across the developed world, efforts to shift away from fossil fuels are taking on a sharper edge as countries led by the United States shower vast amounts of money on their clean energy industries. The spending spree has drawn warnings that Australia risks falling behind in the race to decarbonise its economy as the required workers, materials and money go elsewhere. Energy reporter Daniel Mercer has the story. Ryan Carroll has worked in the labour hire industry for long enough to know a hot market when he sees one. The 41-year-old is the regional director for recruitment firm AirSwift and he says demand for energy workers is through the roof. The market's really strong. I mean, I think the first thing that we really need to understand is that there is a bit of an unbalance between the size of the opportunity versus the availability of talent. At the heart of the scramble is the global race to decarbonise as economies look to replace fossil fuels with renewable energy. As well as the materials, it's creating intense competition for the required skills. It's certainly spiked. You could call it somewhat of a perfect storm in the sense that we've got both traditional energy and now renewable energy both peaking in in demand. The race gained added impetus last year when the US passed landmark climate laws. Included in the Inflation Reduction Act is more than $520 billion of funding to turbocharge clean energy investment in America. Ultimately what it does is creates enormous incentives for things like green hydrogen and renewable energy to be built in the USA. And what that does is acts therefore as a magnet towards the USA for things like clean energy workers, for investment, for technology. Kane Thornton is the head of the Clean Energy Council, which represents green energy developers in Australia. He says America's big spending plans risk overshadowing Australia's own renewable energy ambitions. This is a global market and Australia needs to take steps or we will miss out. We'll miss out on the opportunity to become a global clean energy superpower and we'll miss out on the critical role to deploy more renewables to drive down power prices. Ahead of the federal budget in May, the council is calling on the government to boost Australia's support for renewable energy to ensure the country doesn't fall behind. It wants an expansion of the renewable energy target, greater efforts to electrify homes, businesses and transport, and tax breaks for clean industries such as green hydrogen production. Federal Climate Change and Energy Minister Chris Bowen wouldn't be drawn on the proposals, but notes the Inflation Reduction Act is an opportunity for Australia as well as a challenge. The minister points out that Australia will be a key supplier to the US under the Act. In any case, he says Australia's own climate and energy policies have been significantly boosted since last year's federal election. This is part of the mix that we're always responding to. The world is moving very fast. It's not just the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, Right around the world, things are moving fast. Australia is now, for the first time, right in that race and catching up fast. For recruitment manager Ryan Carroll, there's likely to be little relief in demand for workers. Our forecasts tell us that the, the heat is here to stay. It makes things challenging, but also very exciting. It's the better problem to have. 
Recruitment Manager Ryan Carroll, ending that report by Daniel Mercer. That's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. For renters, it feels like one of the hardest times in history, with rising costs and limited availability. So can anything be done to ease the pressure? Today, housing economist Cameron Murray on whether we're overlooking a simple fix. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.